great crowd. I want to uh, thank everybody for being here. My name's Bill Clark, and I'm a principal and architect with Stevens and Wilkinson, and I am on the uh, the board of the uh, Atlanta AIA course. So uh, welcome. Um, first of all, I'd like to welcome my friends and and the panelists here tonight. Uh, what a great what a great panel! Unbelievable. And uh, a special welcome to you. And here we have, of course, design professionals. We have construction professionals, engineers. We have folks from the community. So what a great group tonight. And uh, it's great to be here. Uh, I'd like to say a special thanks to our sponsors. And if you could stand up um, when I uh, recognize you. And, of course, uh, we depend on our sponsors and friends in the, in the uh, in design and construction uh, community to help us out for these kind of events. So uh, for so tonight we have uh, silver sponsors, Breed Love Land Planning. If you could stand and we can recognize you. All right. We have uh, Gilbane uh, Building Company. I know there's a few folks here tonight. Uh, Turner Construction is here. Uh, sponsors. Oh. And, of course, uh, Walter P. Moore, uh, engineers. <coughs> and then uh, next we have uh, bronze sponsors, a winter construction company. I haven't seen anybody, but if they're not here, welcome. Thank you. And uh, SMPS Atlanta, if nobody's here, I'm a member of SMPS, so. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, there's a, a few other folks, of course, we'd like to recognize. Um, um, let's see, uh, MAP uh, contract for their donation of a uh, uh, Arctura coral side table, if you saw it out there. I did register to, to win the table, so uh, we'll see who wins tonight. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, great partners in the design community. Uh, Martin Nash, uh, they uh, helped us with the staging uh, of the, the, the stage here. Thank you so much. And they're actually located up on the third floor um, at ADAC. And then lastly, ADAC themselves. Uh, I've, some of us have spent a lot of time in this facility over the years, and uh, what a great facility it is. And we greatly appreciate a ADAC being our, our host venue tonight. So Vision for Atlanta 2016. So why are we here? Um, well, we're here because we all have a vested interest in, in a number of things, but certainly I think first and foremost is supporting our communities. We, is, uh, we, we folks in the design community, we know we can have a great impact, a great positive impact on that. And that's one thing we want to talk about tonight. Uh, obviously working closely with our city leaders, uh, the staff creating great infrastructure, great buildings, and great projects. Uh, we want to talk about that. And of course, executing and performing great design and its long-term benefits to our communities. Uh, that's what we do, and uh, we want to talk talk about that. And um, I guess um, I guess my last uh, and next task, of course, is to introduce the introducer of the panel, uh, Melody Harkerode. Melody's uh, just a wonderful person. She's an architect. Um, most people in this room know her. She, Melody serves as the uh, 2016 AIA past uh, president, uh, Atlanta past president. And, of course, in her day job, she works to protect, promote, and preserve historic and natural sites as the project coordinator for the Arabia Mountain Heritage Area Alliance. And um, so this last year and this year, of course, is really Melody's brainstorm to 
get the community together, get our city leaders together, um, uh, the development com community together, and uh, we're going to have a great discussion tonight. So, Melody, welcome. so much, Bill. I really appreciate that kind uh, introduction. And I also want to reiterate my thanks for all of you for coming because, um, as Bill says, you know, we are at a pivotal time in our community, in our city. And as architects, we care. But I think it's not just about architects. That there's so many people, engineers, professionals, citizens, stakeholders, who are concerned, who care about the future of our city. And to have the opportunity here tonight to have leaders, significant leaders, to have an engaging, engaging, lively, perhaps even at times spirited, conversation about important issues that impact the built environment, our quality of life, our, uh, you know, the possibilities for the future. I'm grateful for our panelists here. I'm grateful for Thomas Wheatley to join us here tonight. And so I'm here to introduce them. I know you know much about them. The uh, bios are gonna be brief. So we're gonna begin with Dawn Luke. Ms. Luke serves as the Senior Vice President of Community Development at Invest Atlanta, where she provides leadership and strategic direction in the successful execution of tax allocation districts and housing vision for the authority in the city of Atlanta. Under her leadership, Invest Atlanta has expanded its operations to include comprehensive approach to single family mortgage lending, including providing alternative financing to assist potential homeowners in securing the American dream of home ownership. Let's give a round of applause to Dawn. And right next to Dawn is Mary Norwood. Ms. Mary Norwood represents the stakeholders, the residents of Atlanta as the Atlanta City Council member post two at large. For the past 20 years, Ms. Norwood has been a welcome, and I love this word, formidable presence in Atlanta <laughs> and throughout the Southeast, tirelessly working for neighborhood inclusion and a level playing field in city of politics. With her trademark demand for fiscal accountability and transparency in city government, Mary Norwood has an unsurpassed record of successful environmental preservation, zoning, transportation, public safety, housing, and homeless issues. Let's give a round of applause to Ms. Mary Norwood. And joining her, is Mr. Tim King. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us uh, on this panel discussion. We really mean, I know that you uh, are, because you have so much to say that you are quite in demand these days. So thank you for joining our panel discussion. Mr. Tim King joined the city of Atlanta's Department of Planning and Community Development as its commissioner in July, 2015. He manages the day-to-day -day operation of the Office of Buildings, Housing and Planning and advises the mayor and city council on the physical development and redevelopment of the city of Atlanta through effective planning, design review, construction plans, approval, building code compliance, and housing assistance and economic development. Let's give a round of applause to Tim King. 
And then next to Don Luke is Mr. Egbert Perry. I'm so proud for him to join us tonight. Mr. Egbert Perry is the chairman and chief executive officer of the Integral Group, LLC, also known as Integral. Integral was a pioneer in creating the nation's first urban mixed income, mixed use community called Centennial Place. Integrating mixed income housing, early childhood development, K through 12 education reform and human services, and that has been a concept that has resonated not just in Atlanta, but in other U.S. cities. Um, this, he is, uh, leads a 300-person company that is active in developing transformational community real estate projects in the mid-Atlantic, southeast, and western regions of the United States. Integral and Mr. Perry are regarded nationally as innovators in the field of urban development and revitalization. So let's give a round of applause <laughs> for Mr. Perry. And finally, without much words to say uh, in terms of he uh, brings so much to uh, a discussion, a panel discussion, is moderator Thomas Wheatley. Uh, he is an Atlanta native who has spent nearly 20 years, this is what he says on his website, <laughs> lo 12 lost years in the suburban wilderness. So Thomas is the Creative Loafing's new news editor who covers transportation, the environment, urban development, and state and local politics. They say, on his site it says, the, urban, the University of Georgia graduate enjoys crossword puzzles and C-SPAN. And I'll tell you something about Thomas that I think makes him such an amazing journalist is that he can be seen at countless meetings, big or small, he's there to report, he's there to challenge, he's there to make people think. So I want us to give a great round of applause to Thomas Whitley. And, and lastly, I'd like to give a, a shout out to the staff of AIA Atlanta um, because it takes, you know, you can have great ideas and you can have interesting ideas, but to actually make this event happen takes a lot of time and effort. So I want to give kudos to Chris Ue, to Missy um, Bauer, as well as Malachi Gordon for putting in that time and effort for us to have this quality event tonight. So thank you. So I'm going to hand it to you, Thomas, and thank you again. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for coming out um, and joining us tonight uh, for uh, an event that I've really been looking forward to for several months now, because um, this is a really, it's a really interesting panel, um, and we're talking about something that I don't, I don't think people talk enough about, and that's kind of where's, where's the city going? Um, there's a lot of discussion about the events of the day and, and, and controversies, but we sometimes don't really stop and ask ourselves, you know, what, what path are we on? Um, briefly, I just wanted to say when I was hired at Creative Loafing in, uh, in 2007, and I was hired as a transportation, urban development, and environment writer. And there was plenty going on with transportation. I mean, there's always terrible things happening with transportation. So there's always <laughs> stuff to write about. Um, there was a lot happening with the environment because we were basically in a, 
uh, crippling drought. Um, but shortly after I came on board, there wasn't much to write about with urban development, and my beat kind of just went away. Um, the Great Recession ground that to a halt, and it ground so much to a halt that I vividly remember getting a press release from Invest Atlanta um, announcing the opening of a new subway sandwiches on Campbellton Road. <laughs> and and there's, there's, nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with subway. And that's, I mean, that's awesome that they went out and opened up a business, but I was like, I was like, man, things are really slow. Like, things are really, really slow. And I sent that to my friends, and they were like, yeah, things are slow. Um, but in the last few years, um, my, my beat came back. And it came back with uh, such force that it's, imp it's literally impossible to cover everything that's happening in, in development right now. Not literally. I mean, give us more reporters, we could. But, um, and so I, I wanted to start off by, by asking, asking Egbert um, for some, some context in terms of, is this growth period, this development period that we're seeing, what's, what's different about it? Wow. Is this working? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's the... There are two things. I think I separate neighborhoods from the central core. So on that spine, Peachtree and all of the, uh, what I call the economic spine of the city, uh, what you see playing out, it, it's playing out very well in some respects because the millennials are doing a lot to drive the current demand. And I often say that their taste buds are very different from the taste buds of the generations before, and certainly if you get far enough back to people like me. <laughs> so there is a dynamic that's happening this time that didn't happen before, and that is not only is there more movement to this region, but there is a longer curve or a longer cycle for parcels that are near transit, so the issues around walkability, access to transit, and so on, are extending the life of, or the length of the cycle, and making areas around transit or that are accessible to transit more desirable than they have been in previous cycles. Uh, now that's all very good, and in fact, the millennials live outside of their units. People like us lived inside our units. So the focus was on what the amenities are in your unit. Now they care less about that, so you're seeing smaller and smaller units, and the focus is on placemaking. And I think that's a fundamental, fundamentally different dynamic. I am worried about our lack of attention to community development, because that's suffered. When you, when you say community development, what do you mean by that? That's a great question, because a lot of people use it, and it just means for them affordable housing. That's not community development. Um, the word, the important word is the adjective community. And so if you think about what it takes to have a healthy community, you know, the reason I always think about and talk about Centennial is because what we were trying to do there was create a place that we said, we asked ourselves within Integral, what would it take for us to want to live 
on the site, which at the time was Techwood Homes. Highest um, crime rate in the city of Atlanta, 37 times the national average when we went in there. Um, and the, we had 1,100 public housing units with an average household income of $4,300 a year. And so we really didn't know what we were doing, um, but it was, we were trying to answer that one question. And we came up with a circle of 10 things that we hung on it. So you needed uh, early childhood development, you needed a great school, you needed mixed income housing because you wanted to be able to retain people that would otherwise be displaced with new development. You needed access to jobs and so on and so forth. So the list had all the things that we thought we would want to have if we were living in the community. That's what makes community development. So if you go into an area, the first thing you have to do is figure out, or what we do at least, is figure out what on that list of 10 things is not there. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to put in to make the community whole. And some of what's there may need improvement, some of what's there may need replacement, but you have to start with the comprehensive vision and then fill in the blanks where there are blanks. So when I talk about community development, no one solution is the, can be transported across. It is a matter of trying to fill in the gaps of what's missing that would make the community healthy, whole, and sustainable. Well, Councilwoman Norwood, how, uh, kind of in that, on that same idea, how has, how are you seeing the city respond to this period now, pr prior to, uh, or, or, or in, in a, is it a different way than it responded to the growth after the 96 Olympics? What, what, what is different about how the city is interacting with that growth and, 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 and meeting with it in terms of what Egbert says, community development. Well, I would say it's been sketchy, but I'm really happy to have a commissioner here who gets it. So I'm really happy that Commissioner Keene is in town because it has not been the kind of growth that I've wanted to see all throughout the city. And I see where, yes, we've got you know tremendous vibrancy up and down the spine, but I brought two maps for all of y'all to look at. Um, and after, after this, one is the one on the left is Atlanta and the region, so you can see how tiny we are. And the other is the actual map of Atlanta with only neighborhoods, no NPUs, no council districts, no filters. You can actually go to that map and learn something very fast. Because you can find where Virginia Highland is, but you can find where Adams Park is and you can find where Bolton is, and you can find where Chastain Park is, and you can see the city that we have, because most people do not understand where the city limits are, and they don't understand what the built environment is throughout the entire city. Uh, many of y'all have seen my presentation on mirror neighborhoods, where if you're in Capitol View Manor off of Metropolitan and University, you've got the exact same built environment that you have in Garden Hills because the same landscape architect developed both of them. So you have these amazing um, mirrors in our city. When you're in Westview, you look like you're in Virginia Highlands. When you're in Adams Park down near Fort Mac, you look like you, actually it's not that close to Fort Mac, it's between Cascade and Campbellton, right at Deloe. I know exactly where it is. And I know where every neighborhood is, and I'll do a quiz later. Um, but it's, uh, it looks just like Morningside. 
So these neighborhoods were built at the same time, and so we have a great story to tell to get that information out. And having a commissioner who gets design and gets the built environment, I think we will do better this time. It was tragic in the bubble how much of Atlanta got impacted negatively, both through foreclosure, but a lot of mortgage fraud. And that wiped out whole communities that we have to knit back together. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we're not where we need to be, but I am very hopeful. And um, for the future, as we look at bigger pictures and uh, events like this will help that happen. The, uh, with, with a neighborhood like Westview, you know, I, I live in Westview and it, it very much does look like Virginia Highland, but like the big difference, however, is that down the block from my house, there is a boarded up home that nobody knows who it belongs to. Um, Fannie Mae won't take ownership. The person who's last listed on the property records won't take ownership. Um, oh, I'm not saying you personally. <laughs> That's what they call a faux pas. <laughs> no, well, I'm just, it's been told to me that the government won't take ownership or, or somebody connected to it. A government-sponsored <laughs> yeah, government government -sponsored entity. Um, Is it time for me to leave yet? <laughs> not yet. We're just getting started. Though, but so, so the, the gist of my question is you have people on all sides uh, of that house wanting someone in that house. Right. You have people in other neighborhoods who want the same exact thing. How do we, and I hate to say channel or direct growth to those neighborhoods where that is wanted, but, but how, how do you make an impact? How do, you, how do you show people that, yes, you can move to this neighborhood? Okay, well, we have to do three things. Number one, um, we have to get those boarded houses back into productive ownership. And I've been the co-chair of the Code, Code Enforcement Commission now for a year and a half. And what we have done is to redo the way that we do code enforcement. We're in a pilot project right now, and it's too long a story for tonight. But the difference between administrative NREM and judicial NREM is whether you're in a criminal system or a civil system. If you're in a civil system, you can send a certified letter. If nobody responds, you can go take that property. It's a lot longer story than for tonight. But it really is important, and the city is doing a pilot right now with a first what do you call it, um, group of houses um, that we are doing that with. If we can do that, we can get these properties and we can get them back into productive ownership. The administrative MRM that the city's been doing for years does not do that well. All we do is either tear it down and we have no way to get it back in our ownership, or it sits there and it's boarded up. We are working on it every day. I think it is abandoned houses. I think it is making all communities safe, and I think it is making them clean. We absolutely have got to get the blight out of the communities, and I see individual homeowners in every neighborhood in this town that care so much, and they are up against all odds when you have abandoned places that nobody's taking care of. So clean it up, fix it up, and get it safe, and everybody will move in. That's my view. That's my view, my Atlanta. And, Seems and, simple. <laughs> and, and, but you also have to make it easier to, to connect to these places. And so, Commissioner Keene, what, when, when you're looking at, yeah. 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 <laughs> Your turn. Yeah, I'm talking to you now. <laughs> when, when you look, 
when you look at the map of Atlanta and you are looking at, okay, what needs to be done to make this a more livable city? What's the first thing that comes to your mind you instead of just I've tearing learned, everything down I've and just trying to answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> um, all I'm trying to do is keep up with Mary Norwood. That, that, <laughs> that is a big part of my life. Um, I have to say too that Councilman Andre Dickens is here, and y'all probably know that. But in this realm too, there's nobody that works harder on these issues than he does, and I feel bad that I'm I, I, that I can't keep up with him on these issues. <laughs> And, and I have to say, too, how, um, you know, being a developer is like one of the most craziest things in the world, and you have to be the most optimistic person that you've ever met to be a developer, much less the kind of developer that Egbert Perry is, where you care about the community, which makes it a lot more difficult. And so I just, you know, have to say that before, because I haven't done anything here. <laughs> so I, I believe me, I understand that. I, I uh, and all that. What was the question? <laughs> yeah, let me just, I do want to frame it a little bit. So the, the, this, too, too kind of to the question, the, the, for me this is um, related to this in a way. And so I'm going to take us up and then we can come back down. But So the region's projected to grow by two and a half million people over the next 25 years. And it, the, the, the projection is that Atlanta's growth, the city of Atlanta's growth over that period of time will be pretty modest less than 10% of that 2.5 million people. That's a reasonable projection. The city's population has gone down uh, historically, or it's been very static. Between 2000 and 2010, the city's population went up by 3%. Between 2010 and 2014, it went up by 9%. So it took us 10 years to grow 3%, four years to grow 9%. There's a reason to believe the city can grow. We know about this. And, walkability, how people are choosing to live. The reality is that people will choose to live somewhere, to choose to live in Atlanta versus somewhere else because it's a better quality of life for them or it's a better lifestyle. They're, they're going to make a decision based on, you know, what kind of place it is, right? So the thing about it is in Atlanta, we've grown a lot on the north and we've grown a lot on the east and we have not grown very much on the west and the south. And I think that it would be good for everybody in the region, and especially for the citizens of Atlanta, if Atlanta wasn't less than 10% of the region's growth, but it was much, much more than that. Not asking for 100%, but 25%? I'll give it <laughs> you know, to you. That, this isn't, I mean, you know, I'm not asking for everything, but like 25% of the region's growth. That's a reasonable kind of expectation. If that was the case, the city's population would be between 1.1 and 1.2 million people. We're at 450,000 right now. The reason to grow is not so we have a bigger number. That's not the point. It is that a city of 1.1 to 1.2 million people, I think, would be a much better city to live in if we decide what that city looks like. If you get very active about what a city of 1.1 to 1.2 million people would actually look like, how, how would it be built and how would you move around, and we as a community guide that growth in that direction, this will be a, a much more successful city and a better place to live, because that's the point, mm -hmm. to be a better place to live. That's not how it's been in the past. In the past, this region's grown at the edges, not in the city. And we see what that's gotten us in the city. And, and, and 
So this is a huge issue. So the only way for this to be successful is for the west side to grow and for the south side to grow. Because the north and the east, they'll grow some, a little bit. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> I mean, Every day. They're growing on the yes. north and the east, and there'll be growth there. But really, it's got to be much more balanced. And it so, does. It does. And the, and the issues around the, the situation you're describing to me are really basic issues, like safety. Mm -hmm. You know, schools, you know, uh, uh, jobs and, and services and things like that, which will drive the housing. You know, I mean, we have lots of neighborhoods in the city where we've tried to do housing and, and people won't choose to buy there because it's unsafe right. or they're concerned about the schools or they're not services nearby or their job isn't close. So it's this whole balance thing and it's fundamentally important to every next step in the city. And, and uh, did I cut you off? I have one more public service announcement. Go for it. And, and that is, I have to say, Valerie Bernardo is also here, and she is our new director of housing in, in my department. Thank goodness, because she is incredibly energetic and smart and creative on all these issues. You should stand up, Valerie, please. I'm sorry. <laughs> She was recently appointed, and she's fantastic, and, and, and it helps with all the things you're describing, Valerie can fix. And then, there you go. And then, and then also, not long after I got here, I met M. Tominika Youngblood, who's also here, and she is advising M. Tominika. I hope everybody knows M. Tominika. I'm sure you probably do. A national leader on these issues. And she is also guiding us in terms of strategy around the whole Department of Planning because we, you know, we've got a lot of things to do. And one of the things I, and I'm sorry for going on, this will be the last time I'll talk, but, but the, the thing about <laughs> the Planning Department is that, and it's good to be new sometimes to a place and you can look at things freshly and you look at it and you go, the, the scale of, 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 of improvement needed here is really, really, really significant. I mean, it's not like a little thing. There's, this is a big change that's needed. So M. Tominica, you know, uh, reluctantly agreed to come and, and help us figure out how to be better at what we do. Well, and that was, that was basically your Twitter account for the first three weeks you were in town. What's that? Was like taking a photo of Cortland and saying, oh my God, this is a city street. <laughs> <laughs> Which was good. I thought it was great. You know, I mean, like, that's, that's good to have that kind of can I doing that. candor. Yeah, I know. Better than um, the subway, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, um, well, I, I, I want to, to talk about um, what the city is working on to get to that, that big picture, you know, uh, 1 1.25, 1 1.5 million people mm -hmm. in, in a moment. But I, I did want to jump back to the issue that I hear time and time and time and time again. Um, and I've talked with Councilman Dickens about it, uh, is, is, is affordability. And what, what I'm trying to wrap my head around is, is you know, do, does the city have the tools that it needs to make an impact on that issue. I mean, what, Don, what, what can Invest Atlanta do on that front and currently, and, and is it enough? Thank you, Thomas, for that one. I felt like that's pretty a softball. Um, I was a little nervous being the last one that he asked the question to. Um, I can reword it. No, 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 no. We're fine, we're fine, thank you. Um, 
but, but do we have the tools? And the answer is um, no, we don't. Um, had we had, um, have we um, had some tools that we had in the past now, it may have worked a lot better. Um, so to give you a couple of examples, and, um, and Egbert has been um, leading the affordable housing charge for a long time. Um, you know, he was a part of the first team that actually commissioned a housing strategy for the city of Atlanta. And everyone, and I'm not sure if you, if you need something to read at night and you're bored, uh, please go to our website and look at our housing strategy that was released um, in, in 2015. Um, but a lot of the things that we discovered in 2015 about affordable housing um, looked very similar to the things that um, this commission actually found you know, several years before. And M. Tamanika was a great part of that. Um, and so when we talk about affordable housing and um, mixed income environments, um, we're not there. Um, we, are, we are far from it. Um, the tools that we had in the past, um, if you think about you know, housing opportunity bond, where the city of Atlanta made a commitment, a $75 million commitment towards affordable housing. Um, and if you think about the fact that that has been depleted, 35, the first issue of 35 million has been depleted, and we've not been able to issue the remaining 40 um, to all impact why haven't you been able to issue the remaining four? Um, the, the debt service for the uh, housing opportunity bond is actually paid by the city of Atlanta. Oh. Um, and as a part of that, uh, that bond issue, city council authorized the full $75 million and we thought that we would be smart and issue it in tranches. And so after we issued the first tranche, of course, the, um, the economy changed. Mm. Um, and, so this, and then the city's focus um, really went, on, went to other things like infrastructure bond, where they're having to carry debt service on that, as well as being able to get the city's ratings up. And so we've not been able to, to issue the second tranche, and so we would love to be able to do that. Um, hint, hint, Councilor. <laughs> um, Got it. We, and, so, and so that was a tool that we had in our toolkit that was very successful that we no longer had. We also had a $22 million um, housing opportunity bond fund that was created, um, and that is actually the debt service is paid by the car rental tax. So as people come to the city of Atlanta and rent cars, um, we were able to house about uh, 2,200, uh, produce about 2,200 units of, um, to help with permanent supportive housing. Um, that is completely depleted as well. Um, you know, and so what are the tools that we need? And we recognize that you know, at some point, um, you can't continue to, to throw money at a problem um, that continues to exacerbate you know, um, continuously. And so one of the things that we recognize is that we probably need policy changes. Um, we recognize that we can continue to spend money. The city can continue to commit dollars. But a lot of it is policy. Um, and so one of the things that, we are, uh, that we're working on is really trying to change the dynamics of the city of Atlanta. Um, and, and to really look at the policy, those things that we may consider low-hanging fruit. So one of the things we did first was kind of look at our toolkit and said, you know, especially at Invest Atlanta, we have a lot of tools at Invest Atlanta. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the tools are geographically restricted. And so they are in, within our 10 TADs um, where we can actually pull dollars out to help with not only residential development but retail and commercial development um, as well as transit. Mm -hmm. um, but it, again, it's geographically restricted. So we talk about that balanced growth. Um, those tools may not help the south side of Atlanta or, or the west side of Atlanta because they're not in necessarily TADs. And so, um, so one of the things we said was, what's our low-hanging fruit? What are the policy decisions that we can make to really change the dynamics of what we're doing here? And so we looked at that toolkit, and we just basically said that you know, if you're coming to Invest Atlanta for policies, and this was something that was introduced by Councilmember Dickens on um, as early as as Monday. Um, if you're coming to Invest Atlanta and you want to use any of our funding, be it taxes and bond financing, be it our, our 
TIFFs or TADs or be it um, any, of our, any of our trust fund lease purchase bonds, you will have to have an affordable component um, as a part of that. Um, and not only is it at Invest Atlanta, but it's any time you come to, the, to any development authority that operates inside the city limits of Atlanta. So that could close the Fulton so County Development Authority. that includes Fulton County, and that also includes some part, um, DeKalb County Authority as well. And what that means is that, you know, we're basically trying to level the playing field. And we're basically trying to say that as a, as a city, we have to be in charge of how we grow and to make sure that growth is equitable. Um, and we also have to make sure that we are being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. And, and there's, been, um, there's been discussion, Councilman Dickens has, has been heavily involved in it, about a uh, inclusionary zoning policy with, uh, and I know the specifics are still being worked out, but basically that's a certain percentage of units in a multifamily development would be considered affordable workforce housing, yep. how that's defined, you know, we'll see. Um, Eg Egbert, do you, do you see pushback coming from the development community on that? Do you see, I mean, are, should we be preparing for the great war over inclusionary <laughs> zoning, which is a title of my first book? <laughs> Hopefully I don't play Hopefully a starring role in that <laughs> um, Actually, you will have it. I, there are some realities that, that have to be dealt with. Um, and, and part of the challenge is because of the past unbalanced growth, we have some issues. So think about this for a moment. You're moving into the city, maybe from outside the city itself, but within the region, or you're coming from a totally different city. You're automatically, if you're thinking about where you want to live, you're picking north and east. You're not picking west, you're not picking south, because that's where the good schools are. And then, people who live west and south are desperately trying to fabricate relatives that live in the north so their kids can be supposedly living with them so they can get to those schools, right? So we are disinvesting from the south and the west. And unless there is something that pulls people, so even what Dawn described, when you tell the developer, you're gonna to have to do X percent affordable. If the pro forma doesn't work with doing that, they're not gonna do it, they're gonna go somewhere else. That's right. So what we need are inducements, mm -hmm. things that will entice developers to go there. So this is a simple proposition, it probably won't happen or won't happen soon, but there is no sensible reason for a superintendent of school, a mayor of the city, and the chair of a county commission not to have their own strategic plan and go off in silent, silence at the beginning of an administration and draw up a list of their priorities, find the ones that are common to all three, and say, okay, this is where we're gonna target our energies, and then, if west, in the west side of Atlanta, you have four schools, the city, the school system needs to be committed to investing in creating a couple of great schools west and a couple of great schools south. And the city should overlay 
redevelopment plans over those areas. So now you have two important parts of the city working together instead of the city may have um, a redevelopment area over here, but it doesn't overlap with what the priorities of the school system are. And school systems don't necessarily, they've never historically been first in. They've never been leaders or investors. Mm. They look to see demand for students and, oh, we need to build more facilities. Or we don't have demand, so we need to shut down facilities. So it's always reaction. So it's a cultural change that's needed to get a school system to say, okay, I can actually cause things to happen instead of waiting and reacting to it. It, it doesn't happen in Atlanta, but Thomas, it really doesn't happen anywhere. anywhere. And what we need to do, if we want to get to the commissioner's numbers, we have to have a way to populate West and South. If we had a strategy that was populated in West and South, we could hit that number and a lot more because we will hit and crest at a critical mass where a lot of people will want to come in. Just, and just one, one last point on that. When I moved here in January of 80, 1980, we had 1.1 million people in the metro area. Atlanta was approximately half of that. So the city of Atlanta was relevant. It was truly the center city. And it had, it, whatever it did had relevance in the region. Today, it's less than 10% of the region. Nobody has to really give a flip about Atlanta. At least that's what they think. Of course, if the heart doesn't beat, the body falls apart. But they don't find that out until after they're dead. So, <laughs> so we, we, have to, we have to, what the commissioner described is right on. Until you have enough energy, life, and strength to the numbers in the city, you're not in a position to take a region that is so balkanized, because a lot of the people that moved here in the wave between the 1980s and until relatively recently, they all moved to the outside. They have no love, affinity, connection to the center city. And that's what we have to rebuild. And the best way to rebuild it is to make the city so attractive with the way in which we implement policy or develop and implement policy that it makes it the place where people want to be. And as I said earlier, the millennials would flock there and we would be building that future city off of those trends. If, so if we don't have those other, um, if we don't have that kind of um, collaborative approach to, to really addressing the, the underlying issues outside of just your monthly rent or your monthly mortgage note, um, people are not gonna be convinced to inv invest in, in West and South. Yeah. And I mean, could you, could you see the development community trying to, trying to <coughs> kill that policy? Uh, no, but what will happen is you could give me free land you still couldn't get me to go somewhere where I am borrowing money or investing other people's money that needs a return, is looking for a return, and say, you should go here if, in fact, I can't see 
whatever I develop there as having an exit. And when I say an exit, whoever the first investor or buyer is, mm -hmm. that I know that they will have a market to sell to the next buyer and the next buyer. And to do that, you have to have, as the commissioner said, community infrastructure. And if you don't have that, so unless you're causing those investments to happen in a more synergistic way, you can't shorten the time frame to start those trend lines happening. And we, uh, we, t we touched on how you know, there is, when, when developers are looking to do projects, they look to the north and they look to the east, Buckhead, and um, Buckhead's been really worrying me lately. Me too. Me too. <laughs> we are in a total agreement me about that. Yeah. Well, and That's very unlike you, Thomas. I know. I, I stay up at night and I just think, Buckhead, Buckhead, why Buckhead? <laughs> but, but, but seriously, I think in the last, um, I believe it's in, just been in the past year, Buckhead rejected bike lanes on Peachtree, and I understand that they were, you know, different uh, uh, arguments and nuances to that to that argument. Um, but the message it sent was pretty was pretty clear. Mm -hmm. There was concern about the streetcar expansion strategy. Um, at the same time, you're seeing new development proposed, new development proposed, new development proposed, and I'm, and I really wonder. What is the future of Buckhead going to be if it's going to continue to rely on automobiles? Well, number one, number one, um, those of us who live in the epicenter of the traffic did not ask for it. Um, Georgia being a property rights state, Buckhead was zoned for city center. Some of y'all remember way back, the, the Lenox Square Superblock was the most densely, densely zoned strip of land in the United States of America. Thank you very much. And so we can't, we can't undo that. Um, we, when, we, when you look at Buckhead Plaza, the tallest building there now is 17 stories. The projection for that development, the tallest building would have been 40 stories. So we got a hotel that's better than another 40-story tower. Um, so we, we, have, we have suffered because we have been, quote, so desirable as the top fifth of the city. And I live in the middle of it. When you go to Lenox and Phipps, wave to me, because you will go past my house along with everybody else from Cobb County and everybody who goes from west to east. So here is the reality of Buckhead. It came into the city in 1951. It was the summer estates. It doesn't have a grid system. You don't have other ways of getting around. You have Piedmont. You have Peachtree and you have Northside Drive, and they are very far apart. They're not a walkable, oh, I'll just go over to Piedmont. No, that's a really long way if you're at Peachtree Battle Shopping Center. Mm -hmm. So it didn't work for us to take away, and because they built out the CDB without any transportation imp improvements except 400 bringing everybody in, but no east to west improvements, no um, whatsoever, either on the eastern side or the western side. So you've got a really tough situation. So when you tell me that you're going to take away a lane of traffic for everybody who's coming in from Cobb and all of those places to come and work in Buckhead, and we are choked to death now, mm -hmm. 
You, we, I have never seen Buckhead as engaged in stopping something in the 30 years I have been involved in city politics. Never. And you're right. What did he say? Freaknik. Freaknik. That's the other one. to your right. Freaknik. It was great. It was great. Okay. So, and the and the bars and the bars. Okay. So, but but the issue the issue was everybody got it. We drive that every day. It was different. So what did we do? What we said to everybody who wanted the bike lanes, that we would speed up path 400, which will take people out on a path all the way eventually up to Sandy Springs and come through town on the eastern side. And then the Tanyard Creek Park um, path that all we need is a bridge near Bobby Jones and you can take people up to Buckhead on the western side. And you can come on my street, which is Habersham, which has bike lanes. So you can actually get to Buckhead. It is not as direct as the bikers, bicyclists would want, but we have to keep them safe. And you can't do that on Peachtree, the Peachtree that I drive every single day. You cannot do that. It doesn't work for us. But, but I do. And the streetcar is another one, and I got issues on that too. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but I, but I want it. I want it on the Beltline, but I want streetcars where they are. They have the ability to change traffic signals. They have their own lane, and they have the headways right. That's what I want, and that's Tom, what I wanted ten years I'm ago. I'm feeling so sorry for Tim, well, <laughs> the commissioner. Yeah, you're, you're gonna <laughs> because well, I understand what he means when he says. He can't keep up with Mary. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. Right. This That's much a, information. This much you information. notice I started. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, I'm done. Yeah. Well, well, Commissioner Keene, then, then what, what happens to Buckhead long term if we keep the status quo? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what, what do you see happening in your, in your planner mind? What? Do you see chaos? I mean, oh, absolutely. Really? <laughs> now, um, a few things. One is I've had three meaningful jobs in my life: uh, planning director of Davidson, North Carolina; Charleston, South Carolina; and uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Davidson had 6,000 people living there when I was there. 1,200 of them were college students. Charleston's 135,000 people in a region of about 800,000 you know about Atlanta. What I learned in Davidson was that Davidson had the worst traffic in the world. You didn't know that, I'll bet. The intersection of Maine and Concord was the worst intersection that exists. That's what I learned there. When I moved to Charleston, I learned they were wrong in Davidson. That the intersection of Calhoun and King Street is the worst <laughs> in the world. And now in Atlanta, I've heard that they were wrong. <laughs> it's actually the intersection of Piedmont and Lenox Road. That's the worst traffic <laughs> that exists. The point is only there's no amount of traffic that people will be happy with. I'm telling you that's the case. I, you could live in the most rural town where 10 cars come through downtown each day, and it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. The point is not whether we'll have traffic or not. We will. It's what else will we will have. And, and I think Buckhead has great assets as it relates to transportation. I mean, Buckhead has three MARTA stations. Mm -hmm. um, and there will be ways. I, I think Councilmember Norwood is dead on that, that transit needs to be in its own lane, which what that means for me 
is that we have to rethink the streets really fundamentally. And we have to figure out how, in Buckhead, among other places, to change the streets and really redesign the public realm in a way that is commensurate with the private realm of Atlanta today and in the future. It's almost like we're clinging to this idea that we will be able to drive to everything and park near where we want to go. We will do it. And we won't. <laughs> and it's not me deciding that. It's just not possible. So it means you have to look at the streets and not tweak the streets, but really rethink the streets in big ways to say, to be a better city at 1.2 to 1.5 million people than we are at 400,000, you have to, the, the transit has to be in its own lane. The bikes and the pedestrians have to be treated in a way that makes them super safe and happy and all that because I mean, you don't choose, we can't tell everybody they have to get on public transit. That doesn't work. The reason people get on public transit is because it's more convenient, it's safe, it's affordable, it's happy, all those kinds of things, and that's the system we have to have, a safe, affordable, happy one. There's, there's like most it. likely a, um, and we have uh, one of those. We've get, Kinda, I mean, we, we got some of that. Yeah, no, well, and, and that, that's a perfect segue from my next question. The um, governor deal is expected to sign um, a bill that would allow a uh, sales tax to fund MARTA expansion um, in the city of Atlanta. And uh, support for such a measure has traditionally been pretty high. And I, I wanted to ask you what, um, everybody on the panel, if, if, if you'd like to chime in, what could that do for the city? What could that do for the issues that you have that you have touched on? If you if you imagine that happening, hundreds of millions of dollars in the city of Atlanta, what could how could that change the city? Well, I think where we turned where it ended up in the General Assembly was the best place it ever could have fallen. You know, I mean, I think what happened was ideal, and it's an amazing opportunity. And I think we we have to uh, we have to show how. The investment that we make in public transit will be in service to a city that we uh, aspire to be. You know, it, it cannot be a laundry list of things. It can't be, you know, it can't be, uh, uh, you know, concentrating on transit as a thing. It has to be this is how you deploy a big transit system and you invest hundreds of millions of dollars in a transportation system that is in support of a lifestyle that, that you want. And, and, and that, to me, is the challenge that we have. And it's, it's an amazingly great thing that's happened and that we'll get an opportunity to, to work on and vote on soon, hopefully. I want to go back to one thing about Buckhead. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of apartments in Buckhead, and we have a lot of traffic in Buckhead. And so I want this whole group to just think about having, changing the dynamic, and as we're talking about affordable housing and we're talking about people trying to get to work, let's have an employer-assisted housing program. So if you work in Buckhead or if you work in Midtown or if you work in downtown, there will be, and, and this, is a, this is talking about vision today, this is vision, because mm -hmm. we gotta get the apartment people to understand, we gotta get the employers to understand, and, but if you could, 
not have your hour and a half commute if you work at Buckhead Bread Company or you work at the Hyatt or you work at wherever and you got an employee, if you got an apartment that is near to where you work, um, at, rather than what's traditionally happened, which is transportation um, assistance. Uh, companies have done that for a long time. But to flip it and to say, okay, we got all these people that have to come in, mm -hmm. let's have our affordable housing policy look at how do we make affordability with what we have rather than affordability having to always build new. Yeah. So, y'all can all tear that up, <laughs> tell me that it's crazy, but this was vision and that's mine. Yeah. Okay. I, so, so uh, what I would say is I think that that's a great idea. Um, the issue, the only issue you have with it is that most employers who offer an employer-assisted housing program, um, they, um, they are trying to recruit people to a particular area. So oftentimes when you see a program like that, and right now in the city we only have one that I know of, and that's with the Atlanta Police Foundation. Mm. Um, they're the only ones that I know that offer an employer-assisted housing program uh, because the, every, every employer that comes to the city recognizes that this is where people want to be. And so most times when they offer the program, it's because they're in a rural area or a suburban area and they want to attract a certain type of talent base. Um, Atlanta doesn't need that because we have a lot of amenities where people want to be within the core of the city. And so I think in certain parts of our city or in the suburb areas, it may work. I'm not sure if it will work in a Buckhead area because there is no, there is no motivation for an employee to do that outside of the fact that he, want, he or she wants to enhance the quality of life of their employees. And so if you can convince employers in Buckhead to do that, you, you would be amazing. <laughs> amazing. I mean, you would be, it, would, it would be because, because they don't have the financial incentive at this point because people will come there regardless. I think as a part of, of you know, my challenge with Buckhead is, you know, when I think about traffic is the fact that people are having to drive and commute in. That's right. um, the people right. that work at Lenox Mall, that work at all the retail establishments in Buckhead have to commute in because they can't afford to live there. Right. They can't Correct. afford to live there. And so because there is no affordable, if you think about it, Thomas, we, um, over the past four years, about 9,500 units have been created. 9,500 mm -hmm. units have received tax breaks. They're all in Buckhead, Midtown, East Atlanta. Mm -hmm. 9,500 units, and guess how many were affordable? 30. <laughs> 30. And, 30 units out of 9,500 units. And it's not permanent affordability, It's too. not permanent affordability, and the only reason those 30 were affordable is because the neighborhood required it as a part of the zoning. Mm -hmm. That is the only reason. And we're talking about $118 million in tax breaks that developers receive to build luxury apartments. With no. <laughs> 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 he's right, not, not, not at Burke. Um, but those are the kind of numbers that make, um, you know, when you start thinking about the traffic congestion, you start thinking about the fact that um, Sarah Smith is one of the best elementary schools in the city of Atlanta, if not the best. Mm -hmm. And for people that cannot afford to live in Buckhead, they will never be able to send their kids there. Never. Which means that the, the, the whole issue of generational poverty continues. You know, for those people that live in distressed areas, that live in the south side of town, the west side of town, that have to um, travel and commute to the job centers on the north, you're going to forever have traffic congestion. 
um, until you build a, an environment where people can actually live close to where they work. Um, and so, you know, that's my, that's my take. There, yeah, yes, sir. There, but there were some policy problems that helped to exacerbate that issue. Mm -hmm. So for example, we had the urban enterprise zone legislation for decades. That was the way you got um, affordability, affordable housing development. But there was a time when, and I don't know what it looks like at the very moment, but at this moment, if you had five unit types in your design, you had to have X percent, so if it was a 20% affordability requirement, which actually was what it was back then, mm -hmm. you had to do 20% of each unit type to meet the requirements of that incentive. Mm -hmm. That made no sense mm -hmm. because the makeup of, you, if you could do affordability by design, meaning you use the fact that you can do smaller units, different kinds of units, to get the choke price down. Because people don't buy or rent on the basis of, well, I can get this for $2 a square foot over here, as opposed to $1.85 a square foot over here. They say, I can get in a unit in this development, in this great location, for $850 a month. So if the developer had the flexibility to, do, to achieve affordability <coughs> by design, then you could get more units in. So something as simple as that actually killed some of the carrots, if you will, that could have been used to drive affordability. Mm. And, and that's why I appreciate these two council members, because you have to own the issue and stay in the issue and constantly test. Is it working? Isn't it working? And Don has a very, very, very difficult job because the tools alone are not going to do it unless the policy overlays with it and is constantly being tested against it. And that doesn't always happen. Um, I'm gonna ask one more quick question okay. uh, and then we're gonna open it up to the audience uh, for, for questions. Uh, if you look at the way that development has been progressing in the city, it seems like you know happening fine up north, then it kind of started ticking like a clock around the east side trail. Now it's hitting Memorial Drive and it's kind of rippling out. It's gonna continue down. There's probably gonna see ripples from Turner Field. There's development happening and reinvestment happening in, in Southwest Atlanta in, in pockets. Uh, then we get up to Northwest Atlanta. Um, there's some efforts underway for Emerald Corridor, but what I'm, what I'm wondering is when, when Northwest Atlanta starts to see reinvestment, and I'm talking like Donnelly Hollowell and uh, Marietta Bolton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what role do you see the river playing in our city? We've had our backs to the Chattahoochee River for so long. And what, how, how do you see us, do you see us ever connecting with it? Do you see us ever actually utilizing it? Um, I, actually, I was talking with Keith Sharp about this earlier because he has the Greenway plan for the Chattahoochee and you know we've done everything north of here and then there's a wonderful coalition south of here and we are the the hole in the donut and um right now there is chattahoochee brick and the shell the shale deal and all of this stuff coming at us <clears throat> and i was telling him that um i actually uh, grew up with a uh, family that was in the brick business and we had a brick plant on the savannah river 
in North Augusta, right across the border. And that has been converted to Brick Pond Park. It is no longer a brick company, but they took all of the old clay pits and they have this wonderful environment right along the river. And he said, we got those out at Chattahoochee. And I said, yeah, I would imagine you did because I was in the business. And so he wants to see all of that become greenway and wonderful. And so between his vision and the Emerald Car Division going all the way out to Chattahoochee, it would be tragic for us to continue to ignore the river that we've got. And that is the next great frontier. We've got the Beltline. We're going southeast with everything um, on the east side with Arabia Mountain and all of that. And we're coming west with, with the um, quarry, but, when you, but you are a long way when you're at the quarry from the river. Sure. And so that is marvelous, marvelous land that has been just trashed and blighted. But there is a tremendous effort to reclaim that, and I hope that that succeeds. I certainly support that 100%. And that could come up in the city design project mm -hmm. that your office will be working on. Um, I have a million more questions, but uh, we definitely want to hear your questions more than mine. So, <laughs> you, wanna... no, you got it? Um, yeah, the, the, the way we're going to do it is if you would just walk up to this uh, beautiful glass pedestal uh, and just ask your question in the, in the mic. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, East Lake Foundation, you know, they, I was just wondering how that was a good model or a bad model or is that could be a, a, a model could be used elsewhere? You know, they, they've had a improved the school system, and I understand that's real successful. I was just wondering if that's the limits of that model or potential. What I'll say is uh, I think that it is a great model, but I think there are some things that are not necessarily transferable about that model. Um, I think that, you know, that development has done well because it started off with, with some property that was actually owned, um, meaning the golf course, um, that was actually owned um, you know, by cousins. And so I think those attributes of having um, a great land mass, um, a, 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 an asset that is considered to be a jewel in the middle of a neighborhood actually helped this particular neighborhood. Um, can you transfer that model somewhere else? And you also have um, you know, purpose-built that is out there that is actually doing a lot um, as it relates to the community development around there. So yes, you can have the redevelopment of public housing, which I think was very catalytic as it relates to how that neighborhood transformed. Um, but I think there are some, um, there are some amenities and there are some things um, like having uh, a multimillionaire behind you that um, every neighborhood may not have. So <laughs> I'm not sure if that, if that model is transferable, but I think it's a great model. And they're still in existence across the country, yeah. purpose-built purpose -built communities um, with Shirley Franklin's leadership. They're still out there. So, so my question revolves around the map and the, um, really the Beltline, which isn't shown on the map, but the fact that Paris would fit inside the Beltline in Atlanta and the opportunity presented by millennials to redensify Atlanta, to get those numbers up and what opportunities, what the timelines are, what the thresholds are for getting the transportation piece to help in that densification? Because I think that's really the missing piece along the belt line is light rail and connectivity. Bucket's a good, great example to uh, support that densification. Um, and the millennials' opportunity to really change the way we see living in the city, looking for alternative models that exist around the country 
that millennials will be a conduit for us to accept and explore, um, increase the vibrancy of the way we, our urban environment is here. So what's the timeline? Um, the answer is I don't, I don't have that answer. I don't have that factoid. We need Paul Morris here. He could answer that that fast. Well, the, the timeline is going to have, I mean, obviously a lot to do with if we get to a vote this fall and, and, and what that vote looks like. So, I mean, there, there are prospects for a much accelerated schedule if, if we decide as a community to <coughs> boldly move forward with this thing. The point about the, 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 the you're right about the, the opportunity within the Beltline, the kind of urban core of the city, obviously. I mean, there's 3,500 people living in downtown Atlanta. 3,500 people, <laughs> you know. So I'm talking about downtown, downtown now. I mean, you know, there should be 300,000 or more living there, of course. I mean, the more the better. Pack them in there. Um, it, that makes for a city. Um, but I hope they're not all millennials, because they kind of annoy me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're a millennial. No, I was, I was born in 1980. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm kidding, of course. Maria, Maria. There is a seriousness to that. Yeah, Tim, Tim, he, the Tim says millennials go home. Design project, Atlanta prides itself on being very diverse. And the city of 1.2 million people better be more diverse than the city of 450,000 racially, economically, people from foreign countries living in the city, and, and household sizes. I mean, and if, the, if we concentrate on the schools the way Egbert beautifully described, then we will have more families here. They will go where the schools are. And, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a big issue. The demographic aspects of this, I know in terms of our work, is where we're starting. Mm -hmm. Thank you to Jason for bringing up the Beltline. I don't think we can have a conversation about Atlanta without the Beltline. So um, my question quickly revolves, uh, you know, Egbert, you mentioned, uh, I think, the whole uh, idea of, of places people want to be. And I'm from Pittsburgh, and there were recently an article about uh, best food city in the country. And the stories were really touching about those restaurants um, and where they are. And they were in, they're in places where 20 and 30 years ago, people really didn't want to go. Um, how do you see um, people like yourselves helping uh, restaurateurs, for instance, create places where people want to go? Besides schools, uh, there are other places people want to go. One of the things that we have in Atlanta um, and that I've just so much believed in is very little of Atlanta is truly suburban. The very western part, the ranch neighborhoods, are pretty suburban, but everything else has got little places that could be the next Virginia Highland. Um, look at Westview. You've got that wonderful interplay of the streets that come in at Ralph David Abernathy and wonderful little shops. I mean, everything from Candler Park to Little Five Points, but there are lots of them. There's Lakewood Heights. There's, I mean, they're all over. So we have all of these little tiny commercial nodes that can, all can be vibrant neighborhood commercial districts. And we are a town that will go anywhere for a good meal. You will not go anywhere to get your shoes fixed, but you will go anywhere for the next restaurant. So we just have to get that ready. And, and yes, the city does need to be involved in, in helping to promote. 
you know, one of the most common, commonly used words these days is curate. You no longer uh, develop mixed-use communities and attract retail or attract restaurants. You curate it. So you actually create and evolve and retail uses, especially and particularly restaurants, for the reasons that Mary just gave. Pond City Market is a perfect example. So it's now become an amenity. It's, it's, it's almost as fundamental as it used to be at one point, you say, oh, you need a great park or a nice green space. No, now you need a restaurant strategy. And then you need to curate that strategy and build and develop around it. And that's what you're finding as one of the evolving strategies that are designed to address that very question that was raised. Um, my name is Ian Hunter. I'm an architect in Atlanta. And I moved here eight months ago from Philadelphia because I thought Atlanta was awesome. And I was right. And um, I want to ask a question about the Beltline, uh, which everybody has questions about the Beltline, because it seems to interact with, it doesn't matter where you work or what you do, the Beltline will affect you. It doesn't matter if it's transportation, education, anything. So um, we have part of the Beltline developed, and that's over by Pond City Market. It leads up to Piedmont Park, and that's a beautiful area, and people have tons of money there, and it's gorgeous, and everybody goes there. And I think there's a lot of, um, I think it makes a lot of sense that the next developments of the Beltline are not going to be adjacent to that, but instead we're going to look at the west side. We're going to look at the south side and begin to develop the Beltline in those areas. But um, from what I've seen in my short period of time here in Atlanta is that um, as noble as that may be to develop those areas, I'm concerned that we're not really enhancing those areas by developing the Beltline there without new policies in order to help people who are living in those areas not just get pushed out by what's going to be developed because it's such an awesome place. What do you think um, is the city's like moral obligation to let the people who are living in those western and southern areas actually benefit from the Beltline rather than have to ship out as soon as the Beltline is developed in those areas. Great. 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 Yes. Zoning. Yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, of course, I'm going to say inclusionary zone. I think that's the fix for a lot of stuff. But, but I think you're right. Um, there needs to be some policy decisions around how the, how the Beltline is developed. I think you know they are launching a lot of new programs um, at Atlanta Beltline Inc. that will benefit those individuals. So for instance, they have launched an owner-occupier rehab program because one of the things they recognized early on is that, especially in the western part of the Beltline, that the housing stock was extremely um, old. And so as a part of that, they're providing grants to individuals. And they're doing this through the Federal Home Loan Bank. Um, they're providing grants for individuals to actually fix their homes up. You will be amazed at how many homes along the Beltline really have code violations because they've not been able, they're in such disrepair. Um, and so a big part of the program is really to be able to, um, to educate in addition to that. So um, one of the things that, that we're working with ABI on is um, a holistic approach to how we're doing the owner-occupier rehab. It's just not about rehabbing the home, but it's about educating the person that lives there. 
So as a part of that, we have uh, a relationship with various organizations that are providing legal counsel to the individuals that are getting these grants. And as a part of that, they're establishing, um, they're helping with estate issues. They're also making sure that they have wills in place. They're making sure that they've taken their homestead exemption, which you will be amazed at how many people don't take their homestead exemptions because they don't understand if they qualify for them, um, which means that it affects, it directly impacts how much you're paying in taxes. So as the values start to go up, if you have that exemption, you, your values stay pretty stagnant as it relates to what you pay. Um, and so they're educating them about how they can go about um, getting these benefits. Um, you know, but more importantly, I think it's just a, a shift in the way that we're thinking. Um, I think um, one of the things that we recognize as a part of the Beltline is, is really high density focused. Um, and I think as a part of that, of course, there's a, a trust fund that was created. And that trust fund was to basically help with affordable housing, help, help people to, to stay in that particular um, um, development or around the Beltline. But one of the things that we started off doing and we've not been able to really crack that nut is be, um, to create community land trust. Um, we did our first community land trust and the only community land trust um, on the Beltline at, uh, at Reynoldstown. Mm -hmm. And that allows for permanent affordability. Um, and so what it means is that you basically, you, you know, there's a, there's a nonprofit that owns the dirt. Um, you own the improvements. And if you decide at any point that you want to move, then that property has to go to another affordable person. Um, and so we were thinking that the community land trust is the model to really keep people in those homes and keep people in their neighborhoods. Um, and it, it hasn't taken off the way that we really wanted it to. And so and a lot of that has to do with being able to fund a community land trust. And so ideally, we would love to be able to get another issuance of um, Beltline bonds that will allow us to be able to continue that effort. But that's just one of many th tools that's needed to do that. Well, thank you all for being here this evening. Um, my name is Michael Can. I'm an annoying millennial and also one of the 3,500 residents downtown. So, <laughs> also, also, I serve as the well, associate editor of uh, Curb, so that will show up tomorrow. Um, my question here is, uh, I'm, I'm a native Atlantan and I've watched Atlanta as we develop tear down a large portion of our historic uh, properties. And um, unfortunately, we don't, we don't talk about it enough, and a lot of it is policy-driven. I did an article the other day on the Daughters of the American Revolution facade that was recently lost over on Piedmont. And the developer actually sent us a letter and said a lot of that was because the city was strong-arming them into tearing that down. I don't know what's true, what's not, but the point is there's a lot of issues where we don't have a lot of support policy-wise for preservation. So in the vision for the future, how much, how are we going to preserve our history? What's left? Well, I mean, let me say this about this. I mean, there's a lot of things to say about it, but one thing is the only way to save buildings is to have some legal protection in place to save them, period. And every community has a tolerance level when it comes to regulations like this. The ability to tell people you can't tear something down. I happen to just have come from a place that has a huge tolerance for this. <laughs> we wouldn't much tear anything down. It didn't matter, you know. The point with that is that we will save what we decide as a community to save. And there have been efforts to do historic districts, great, huge community efforts to do additional historic districts, 
that did not pass for whatever reasons that would have protect buildings. And so one level of this is we as a community have to voice that there's value in old buildings and follow that up with some hard work around protecting things. Two, two other quick things on this. One is, to me, you got to start with not tearing things down. I, I feel like in some ways we've moved into things that are, are diminishing the potential we have in historic preservation by messing with people in historic districts, like telling you how wide your pickets need to be on your picket fence or what kind of, you know, whatever color your house has to be. We're not saving buildings, but we're doing that. Come on, we're losing credibility. I mean, so there has to be a dialing of this in association with a, you know, because you, you, you really lose credibility. I mean, so you, you got to be smart about that. But, um, but Tim, the, the last thing to say is that I think we need to set some priorities when it comes to this particular issue, which is a huge passion of mine, to say, how, where do we start on this beyond where we have protections today? What are those things that we most want to protect, and how do we build consensus around protecting those things? Because right now, it's just, it's, it's a crapshoot, and there's not enough protection. So that's one thing we're going to do, actually, in association with this thing, is kind of a preservation plan in terms of involving everybody and saying, where do we start? What are the things we want to do first? Because it's hugely important. I mean, this is, you know, a better place at a 1.2 million. We got to save the old buildings we have, clearly. I mean, we have enough to have the fabric, but they have to be protected, no question. And, 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 the, and the city hasn't updated its inventory of historic buildings in like 1980s, correct? That's right. I mean, it's, it's been a long, long, long it's been time. A long time. Yeah. Um, and, um, the, and the reality is, um, when the property values get to a certain level, you can't protect anything. So what we have is six historic districts that went up in flames, um, all north of 14th Street. And mine was one of them in 1990. We have, uh, we have all the examples. So six of them went up in flames. There is no protection. So you got, got very high value, and people come in, and good luck what's going in next to you. Oh, my God. Um, in other parts of the city, you have tremendous protections. And then we have our zoning ordinance, which we are uh, and under with the great wisdom of our new commissioner going to rewrite because it yes. is a mess. You either have all of these different districts that each have all of these little how wide the picket fence can be um, and then but the enforcement and people trying to figure out what they can do and can't do everything from LCIs and NCs and SPIs and historic districts and I mean in quality of life districts and Beltline overlay and whatever so it is a mess. And in the back is the um, report. And for those, I've got 25 copies here, zoningatl.com. Zoningatl.com, you can get it. Um, we have gone through uh, community assessment. Uh, we have reported out. It's going to be reported out finally in May. And the commissioner is going to make this happen. And I'm going to help him make this happen. Because we really need to have our zoning. That's right code reflect what it is we want to keep and make it possible for us to have the vision that was the whole reason that we are having this tonight. I, I never mind being a contrarian voice, so I'm going to be one right now. Uh -oh, I will, I'm going to bring I will, some stuff up. <laughs> I will agree 
with everything about preservation, but I'll say unbridled preservation right. is just as bad as unbridled demolition. And so if you have policies about preservation, but they are so strict and it becomes an unfunded mandate, because in order to redevelop the, the building the way the commissioner described, if there is no economics to do it, you have buildings that, yeah, you'd like to preserve, they're gonna sit there unpreserved until the Lord becomes your demolition contractor. Because, <laughs> because the strong winds, the tough weather will take them down. And I would say that's just as irresponsible as demolishing without conscience. So you need, moder you need to be practical in how you apply it. Because at the end of the day, unless you're talking about public money doing it and you're creating museums, if they have to be in an adaptive reuse, it still has to make economic sense. So that, and that has been one of the challenges I see. Maria? Oh, gosh. Um, we're talking about the vision for Atlanta and the future. And Mary, when you were running for mayor in 2009. A lifetime ago in a galaxy far, far okay. away. <laughs> <laughs> and not back to the future, we don't know that yet. Um, but anyway, I asked you a question when you were on a mayor's panel about what was your favorite city in the world and you couldn't pick Atlanta. And you said it was London. And the reason you said London is you love being able to walk everywhere and be able to take transit everywhere and all this. When you described your vision for Buckhead, no bike lanes, no street cars, I am just wondering <laughs> if there's a contradiction here. And, and you know, not that I'm trying to set the two of you up again. Yeah, damn journalists. Um, but <laughs> that's what I, I'm so I, glad you're asking them the question. <laughs> <laughs> you see, we got your historic preservation past, yeah. Edward. Um, but I love you still. Anyway, um, I don't want to set up a fight between the two of y'all, but I do feel as though there is a very different point of view about which direction you see the future of Atlanta. And I'd love it if you, you two could expand on that in terms of how we are going to live. Let's Atlanta. just talk about London. Let's just talk about London. Let's have fun, okay? I, ding, ding. I am, uh, Maria, I'm one of the few people who can actually walk to the commercial part of Buckhead. And I do that. And I do that more than once, less than 500 times, but more than once. So, um, but here's the problem. You can't come to Buckhead and say, we are taking away the only way you can get around and not tell us how we can get around. So I wanted years ago jitneys. I wanted Uber before there was Uber. I wanted transit on demand. I wanted people going on double-decker buses around the town and zipping to the Virginia Highlands and the little five points of the world. I wanted to see a lot of things. I would take a monorail. Let's get above, let's get above the street. Let's, you know, zip. But you've got to, like some of the European cities are doing, but we have got to say to Buckhead, if we do X, here's how we don't further choke you. When, when I leave to go over to Lenox, between 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock, it can take me an hour, and it is less than three miles away. 
Now, you can't tell people where it is an hour to go three miles that you're taking away a lane of them being able to do that. So we've got to have that answer and we need good transportation people. The Connect Atlanta plan, I supported 100% for everywhere in the city it works. You've got a Lee Street, you can do a lot, and we need to do a lot so that Lee Street connects all the way into the city. Mm -hmm. We need to connect out from the Beltline because the Beltline is only those 22 right. miles. I get that, and when you've got the entire city, I'm on my feet now. When you, <laughs> when you get the entire, when you look at our city, here's the line, guys. This is Bolton Road, Chattahoochee, south and west of Georgia Tech, south and west of downtown, south and west of Grant Park. Take the cab out because the cab's kind of a mixed bag of tricks. You've had absolutely no development here in 50 years. We have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get this right. So I want to see streetcars. I want to see bicycles. I want to do all that. I love the fact that we got the grid system here. I love that Midtown did their blueprints and they stuck with it. They stuck with it. Susan Mendham, God, God love her. Kevin Green, they've stuck to their guns. They planned but they had the grid system. I got summer estates with a whole lot that contributes to this city economically as well as, as philanthropically, um, and we have to take care of them too. So you give me the plan that says, here's how we do bikes and here's how we do a streetcar, but here's how you can get around. Or we don't do a streetcar, we do a monorail, or we do a whatever. But you've got to get us there. And you've got to get us there without what is happening to us now there, which is breaking point for a lot of the people that are, that are trying to just get east to west. I wanted, with Connect Atlanta Plan, a subway coming in from Cobb County. I wanted it to come straight underground to Buckhead. And if it went to the Buckhead Martyr Station, you could then get to Lenox, you could then get to Lindbergh, you could then get downtown, and all of that Cobb County stuff that is absolutely miserable for them and miserable for all of us would at least be somewhat assuaged. You know what I was told 10 years ago before my involuntary separation? They said it was too expensive and it was not going to do enough. So they wouldn't even consider it. So, but I, I'm there. I just want us to figure out how to do it. I'm sitting down. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tim has nothing to say. Did you want to, res did you want to respond at all? I mean, we, we, can, we can bring in more maps. I'm, 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 I'm not going to stand, but, but um, and I know everybody's getting tired. Let me just, a couple quick things. One is that we, we have traffic because people drive. That, that's the there reason you go. we have traffic. <laughs> and I've learned that. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't think that um, there's a disagreement here. And, and really, this is our responsibility. This is part of the city planning department's responsibility is to put this in context in this way. This isn't a choice. It's not between cyclists or motorists or pedestrians or transit riders against motorists or anything like that. The reality is 2.5 million people are coming here. They're going to live somewhere and they're going to work somewhere. If they all have to drive 100% of the time, this condition at Piedmont and Lenox will look beautiful today. If everybody that comes here has to drive. The only way to solve this problem, and if you drive your car 100% of the time, and that's just great, you benefit from others not having to. 
It's the only way to address this problem is if we get people out of their car. If the average car home doesn't generate 10 car trips, but it's eight or seven, we will have addressed the person in the very suburban area that drives all the time. We've addressed their, that's the only thing we can do for them. Literally, there's nothing else we can do. We've tried everything else. Every inch of our streets is devoted to moving a car through the intersection faster. We've maxed it out. Mm -hmm. So we have to get people out of their cars. And it's for the people that drive all the time that we need to do this. Mm -hmm. and, and that has to be explained and shown to people, not just random one-off projects that they don't see what's this for. I mean, what are we doing here? So. Yes, sir. OK, I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. I speak to you this evening as a resident of the West Side and as a property owner West Side. So here, here's what I find. Even if you wanted people to be there, it's a bad land. There's no services. When I say no, just nothing. There's no open laundromats. There were two supermarkets. One's already gone. The other one should be gone. Even if you wanted to build affordable housing that was actual affordable, there's no way for the individuals that are currently there to generate enough legal income to occupy your units. <laughs> now, now, with that being said, I, I'm a student of Mr. Perry against his will, and I've done everything he said don't do. Just for the record, that's where it is. With that being said, everybody's talking about, oh, millennials and traffic and this and that, but nobody's talking about the people. The people that are there now know they're being pushed out. They don't think they're being pushed out. They're going to fight you tooth and nail. They're being pushed out because they're never spoken about. I have no skill. I'm a convicted felon. I can't get a job. I can't get an apartment. Oh, the wolves are there. Now I'm going to take whoever has more than I have. I'm going to take it from you because I have to survive until you actually force me out to the other side of 285. Am I right, wrong? You're right. That, that's you're, you're right, but that's why that's why mixed income <coughs> came to life. That's why it was created. Without because, the well, but here's the problem. You can't be against gentrification and at the same time be looking for services. If you build a supermarket in an area that doesn't have the traffic, you will be begging every year for subsidy to keep the supermarket open. The only way to ensure that that supermarket comes, whether you drag them kicking and screaming or not, is because you have people there with disposable income. So gentrification is not a bad thing. Gentrification is only a bad thing if it comes at the expense of moving out the people that are the long-term residents. So the focus needs to be on how do you achieve gentrification and still preserve the people who have been in the neighborhoods. But if you get up and you put placards up and say, I am against gentrification, you're already, and I know you're not saying that. I'm not, I'm not putting you there. But the truth is, what we want is more and more people coming in to rebuild the critical mass. Because that disposable income is what's attractive to businesses and cause businesses to want to come there. So okay. here's my question. Yep. Are we doing something actually for the people that are there now? Well, those are the programs yeah. you were talking yeah. about, right? Yeah, Trying are. to overlay how you preserve. Yeah. The I mean, 
That answer, that answer is yes. I mean, we are all focused on trying to make sure that people can age in place, that people have the resources that they need. We are doing a lot of that. And Andre Dickens, as head of community development, human resources, is doing a lot of that hours and hours and hours and hours every week. So the, the results, it is very difficult. It's difficult. And let me give you a just real quick example. Here's when, here's when it does work. You look at the new, the new publics that took 10 years to get at, at Moore's Mill and Bolton. And, but the reality is, is that that was perfectly positioned to succeed because you've got crazy traffic in Buckhead, and so everybody's west of 75, which is part of Peachtree Battle, part of West Wesley, Ridgewood Road, West Paces Ferry. You've got all these streets that either have to fight to get over uh, uh, on the other side of 75, or they can go in their own backyard right off of Ridgewood, right at Bolton Road, and they can go to the Publix. Now, the equal distance the other way is some of the poorest communities in the city. So it was the perfect blend of we didn't take any of the poorest people and, and move them out, but they're going to have an amenity they could never have had any other way because they're going to get a very high quality because of Peachtree Battle being just right there. As we do more of that, mm -hmm. as the Beltline comes and we do have new people, and new people are moving into these neighborhoods, into Capitol View, into West, um, into Sylvan Hills, into Westview. When you have that, if we don't move the people out and we do the things that we're talking about, we will get the vibrancy we need everywhere, and we will get those services there. I, so, I could go longer. And the and only thing I would add to that is, um, today I spent, in my eight-hour job, I spent six hours trying to figure out how to get a grocer to come to Hollowell. And the reason being is because everybody that we talked to said it's not enough rooftops and it's not enough disposable income. So to Egbert's point, until we bring in those types of incomes, th those middle income earners that have this, nobody's going to come there. And so I ended up talking to an individual who has a community interest. He is a developer, and what he has, has agreed to do is to actually put earnest money down on the one that's closed. But the only reason he did that is because he is vested in that community. He has made a commitment that he is going to work with the 17 churches in that community to help to repurpose and to um, build workforce housing on that site. That's because he's vested in that community. If you were to have a, a developer that is purely profit sinking, that does not have that type of commitment to the neighborhood, it will never happen. When I tell you six out of eight hours talking, trying to convince a grocer to come, and all they can tell you is we, we won't even think about it because we know that we're not going to be successful unless you're going to give us a lot of subsidies. I mean, I would have to give millions of dollars in subsidies to drive that grocer to, the, to that particular area. So we need those disposable incomes. And I think Egbert is exactly right. You can do it in a way where you're still preserving the people that live there. You're giving them the opportunity to remain in the neighborhood they've been committed to. But you have to have the rooftops. I mean, you think about on the west side, on Hollowell, you know, 
we lost Boeing Homes as well as Bankhead, which were not bad things, but it was rooftops. It was rooftops. So you lose that, and then you, you lose the ability to, to say that we're going to replace that with something. And until I'm able to say we're going to bring in mixed income, mixed use development, nobody's going to touch that. And so a part of my job is to figure out a way to either incent that or to be able to change the demographics of that neighborhood. Because that is the only way you're going to get the retail. You know, I have people saying, why can't I get a Whole Food? Why can't I get a Starbucks? <laughs> Seriously. And uh, and uh, final question. Good evening, folks. You can you hear me? My name is Neil Campbell, and I really appreciate the panelists for your time this evening. Uh, Egbert Perry, Don. One of the things that I've actually absorbed from the conversation, and as an architecture professional, is we don't really understand the culture of Atlanta. Okay, and we also have a big problem with uneven economic distribution which causes a lot of the traffic congestion. For example, if I live in Conyers and I have to work in Cobb County every day, you know, think about how that would endanger my life and actually the amount of time to go to work and come back Move home. to the and, city. Hmm? Yeah, we, we can get you right. closer to Cobb. But, but yeah, exactly. We'll get you a lot closer to Cobb. Right. And what you said, Don, is you know, if people can actually live closer to where they work, that would minimize it. But of course, Atlanta is almost like a dysfunctional family, where the husband doesn't like the wife, the kids hate the parents, and everyone's off doing their own thing. You know? And because of that, there's so much chaos in the city. And so what Egbert is saying is actually, if people can actually focus on the nucleus, which is the center of the city, then that can help to alleviate some of the problems that we have, you know, as far as giving people options in how to live a better lifestyle, like the Beltline. It shouldn't just be like, for example, architecture just be for wealthy people. Architecture could be for people who are working class. And I think that's, we, we've actually underserved the middle class community. Because if you look at the. And sir, because we, we're on a tight timeline. So yeah, you, your, your question. Right. What's, what's so the question? whole point is we need to get architects and people who help create ideas for a better life to kind of put our minds together to improve the actual culture that we want here in Atlanta. Here you go. All right. All right. Cool. Well, did you have a question, Chris? No, no. <laughs> 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 <Sure>. <laughs> um, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much for being patient and, and sticking around a little longer. We couldn't cover everything, but thank you.